Good morning. Good morning. The 2016 film Rogue One, a Star Wars story, hinges upon an impossible plan against impossible odds. In this prequel to the original Star Wars trilogy, the Empire is on the brink of completing the Death Star, the famed planet destroyer. The Rebel Alliance has discovered that there is a weakness to it, a fatal flaw at the heart of the design, its very own Achilles heel. To destroy the Death Star, however, the Alliance will first have to steal its structural plans. Those are found in a data bank on a far-flung planet, deep behind enemy lines. There is little chance for success in this mission. But in a crucial moment, Jen Erso, the film's protagonist, the daughter of the scientist who laid the groundwork for the Death Star's demise, reminds the rogue leaders that they need no guarantees for success in order to do what they must. If we can make it to the ground, she says, we'll take the next chance and the next, on and on until we win or our chances are spent. Rebellions, after all, are built on hope. A long time ago, in what sometimes feels like a galaxy far, far away, Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Here, however, the apostles need not hope. Here they get all the evidence they need to believe in the success of their mission. The passage is a lavish landscape of audiovisual guarantees about the Messiah's claim to power. This is my son, the beloved, a voice cries from heaven. Listen to him. The scene is familiar to us, but it's well worth noting what takes place here. The appearances of Moses and Elijah are no accident. As the two most prominent prophets in Israel's history, they remind the poor Jewish fishermen that they stand on holy ground. Even more than that, these prophets died under mysterious circumstances. Their return is a powerful omen of things yet to come. According to scripture, Moses died on Mount Pisgah, but the text is hazy on the details. No one knew his final resting place. Is Elijah, Elijah, as we heard earlier today, did not die, technically. He simply ascended to the heavens in a chariot of fire. No big deal. The average first century Jewish person witnessing these events knew that the arrival of these two exceptional figures would be a sign of the end times the long-awaited day of the Lord. Peter, James, and John stand back, at once awed and terrified. This is indeed the Messiah they hoped for. The world is about to turn. And yet, and yet, we know what happens next. This is but the beginning of the end. The next six chapters of the gospel according to Mark will concern themselves with how the whole plan fell apart. These disciples did not get the Messiah they expected. Instead of a gold crown, their Messiah will wear a crown of thorns. Instead of an enthronement, they will witness his crucifixion and shortly thereafter, the destruction of the second temple. Instead of a glorious revolution, they will suffer decades of persecution. 
Just what are we supposed to make of the transfiguration if it is to be followed by betrayal, execution, and destruction? Just how do we make sense of this Messiah? This Messiah who announced the glory of his kingdom by walking the way of the cross. Jesus turned people's expectations upside down. They hoped for a way out of despair. Instead, he led them through it. These fishermen were expecting a savior who would make life easy for them. Instead, Jesus told them that they had good work yet to do. These disciples hoped to sit at the right hand of the Son of Man in glory. Instead, they learned that the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. If you believe in the power of positive thinking, do not look to the Gospels for inspiration. If you would like to manifest an easy, successful life, you should not look to Jesus as an example. Jesus, you see, didn't promise that life would be easy if you followed him. No, he promised that life would be good, that you would discover true meaning and joy in it, but that does not mean that the journey will be a walk in the park. The life Jesus invites us into, the salvation he offers you and I, is inextricably tied to the way of the cross. He invites us into the world's suffering and pain, not around it, so that we may find new life on the other side. To paraphrase the civil rights lawyer Brian Stevenson, we must get close. We must be proximate to the world's pain if we want to be made whole. It is there in the vulnerability of that space, in that territory where we discover how the world's hurt meets our own, that the power of proximity reveals itself. There we discover our common humanity. There lies the way to true empathy and reconciliation and understanding. Friends, I know it is easy to tune out. I know it is easy to despair when we look at the state of the world today. But this is nothing new. The challenges before us are but the new face of the collective sin that has plagued humanity since time immemorial. And what Jesus offers you today isn't a solution written in stone or a 10-step plan for how to win friends and influence people. What he offers you instead is a chance to repent, to turn, to make that small decision that will help you get one step closer to the heart of Christ, a heart that stands always closest to the dispossessed and downtrodden of this world. And if you take that chance, that small step, whatever it may be for you, then maybe you'll be able to see the next step and maybe the step after that. In so doing, you will learn what it means to walk in hope. Revolutions, after all, are built on hope. So we are always confident, wrote our church's namesake, the Apostle Paul, in the second letter to the Corinthians, for we walk by faith, not by sight. The choice to take up your cross and follow is yours and yours alone. 
But the good news is that you will never have to do it alone. We walk by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. The Christian faith has always been a group project, my friends. So let us observe a holy Lent together in the coming weeks, and let us learn what it means to walk in hope. Amen.